I want somebody to acknowledge what happened here, which is that they locked up the wrong guy for 33 and a half years. And it wasn't necessary to do this. I want, I want the state to acknowledge that they did it wrong. We now knew that Soaring could not have left his blood, but more importantly, it said, so somebody else was at the crime scene with typo blood. There were two other males walking around in that house bleeding, and we have no idea who they are, and nobody's even tried to figure it out. Okay, so we're here. We are here. Oh, she's outside. Okay. All right. Sandy. Hi. Hi. How are you? Hi. It's nice to meet you. Courtney. I'm Courtney. You I'm Rachel. And that's Rachel. And we're not going to shake hands just because of the corona no, that's stuff. Okay. So, <laughs> and I got my hand sanitizer. Okay, Perfect. yeah. Perfect. If I get in the back. Yeah, of yes, course. Yeah, yeah, hop in. It's a Sunday morning in mid-March, just before a statewide stay-at-home order went into effect. The investigation we thought would take a couple of weeks has turned into a couple of months. It took us across the state with a trip to another prison and interviews with people who have never spoken publicly about the Hasa murders. On this day, Courtney and Rachel have managed to track down a woman they think could be key to understanding more about the two men convicted of murdering a homeless man in Roanoke, and how that crime could be related to the Hasa murders. Sandy is Sandra Thornton, and she has a lot to say. But it took many weeks to find her and even longer to convince her to talk about the murders. Derek and Nancy Hasem were brutally murdered in their home in Bedford County on March 30, 1985. Derek Hasem was stabbed more than 30 times, and both were nearly decapitated. A week later, a homeless man named Marvin Milliken was stabbed to death 30 miles away in Roanoke. He was stabbed 26 times and his penis was cut off. Two gruesome stabbings a week apart in neighboring communities. Two men were convicted of the murder in Roanoke, and DNA left at the Hasem scene in Bedford suggests two unidentified men were there. Could it be the same two men? It's a question no one's been able or willing to answer, and that is what we are trying to figure out. Investigators and lawyers for Yen Soaring have been wondering the same thing. Retired Detective Richard Hudson, one of the investigators who's reviewed the case, says Bedford officials have stonewalled. We don't know, but I mean, when you talk about what's possible, this could be possible. Um, and we don't know why it wasn't explored. We don't know if it was, and there's an, there's an explanation for what happened, why, how they got eliminated. But they've never provided an explanation for anything else. The two men convicted in the Roanoke case were 25-year-old William Shiflett and 22-year-old Robert Albright. They'd been in the Bedford area when the Hasems were murdered. In fact, they'd been picked up by a Bedford County deputy while hitchhiking just a few days after the Hasems' bodies were discovered. They told the deputy they'd been visiting a girl in the area and were headed to Roanoke. The deputy let them go, but a few days later found a knife stuck between the back seats of his patrol car. No one had been in the car since those two men. Shiflett and Albright made it to Roanoke, and a few days later showed up in an emergency shelter called The Raft, where, according to a 2018 letter, volunteers overheard them making incriminating comments 
about a rich bitch taking them to her house to meet her parents. The letter was sent to Chuck Reed, the former lead investigator in the Haysom murders. It was from a former raft volunteer. The letter writer claimed volunteers also said the two men discussed killing not one, but three people. Police reports indicate investigators in Roanoke reached out to Bedford authorities, but Hudson says there's no evidence anyone in Bedford followed up. They were eliminated as suspects. I don't know how, don't know why, but they got eliminated. We wanted to track down the person who wrote that letter, and we started with the names of a few raft volunteers we found in an old police report. We got lucky when we got a hold of the man that was in charge of the raft shelter back in 1985. I'm Andrew Sisson, and I was the director of the program that had been known as The Raft, which was a hotline walk-in crisis center that existed in Blacksburg. Andrew still lives in Blacksburg, a college town just down the road from Roanoke. He invited us to come down and talk. This program was started um, by volunteers uh, from Virginia Tech, student community in the early 70s, 1969-72. They were concerned about the increased use among their peers with things like hallucinogens and other drugs that no one really seemed to know what to do and wanted to be able to offer supportive help. But by 1985, the raft wasn't just helping people on bad trips. It was taking in people with more serious mental health and substance abuse issues. We had this unique body of volunteers who had gone through a training to be available in shifts over a 24-hour day period to answer the hotline or talk with people who came in. We started to provide overnight shelter for people because there seemed to be a need. As Andy is talking, we're driving around Blacksburg in a Subaru Forester. I'm going to ride you by the facilities that we used, including the three that were the volunteer programs. He's showing us three houses in a row on a residential street right near downtown Blacksburg. The overnight shelter was in a house on the corner. It's a bungalow with white stucco siding and black trim. This house has a basement and an outside entrance around the other side. This place you're looking at right here is the entrance to a little mudroom and a really large kitchen. And there was a door in that kitchen that went down into the basement where we had a couple rooms that could be used for overnight stays. And we also had some dressers with a clothing bank. Andy wasn't working the night the two men came in but he's still in contact with others who were. While he's talking, he starts getting text messages. They're from a former raft volunteer, someone we really want to talk to. The volunteer who wrote that letter, suggesting the two men who had stayed at the raft might be connected to the Haysom murders. She's texting Andy all kinds of details, but he says the volunteer is not ready to go public. I've had a lot of text and some emails from this one particular individual who, you know, basically said what I've been telling you and says right here, anything I've said can be used, you know, in terms of me communicating some of their stuff to you, just not my name. Do you think they would be willing to talk to me without their names used at all? I don't know. I doubt it, but... 
um, I, I can ask. Andy says the volunteer has been concerned about confidentiality requirements. And he says they're afraid of the consequences of speaking out in such a high-profile case because of what happened after they wrote the letter to Chuck Reed in 2018. This person was asked if they would write a letter to the governor. And then later on felt like they were now opened a floodgate and were being really harassed by both sides. He says he'll assure them they're free to speak out if they wish, that confidentiality requirements don't apply to this situation. Whatever Andy said to the volunteer worked. That's how we ended up driving down to Floyd, Virginia, about a week later, to speak with Sandy Thornton. She was ready to talk for the first time about the night those two men checked in to the raft. We're sitting in our car in the parking lot of Hardy's near downtown Floyd with Sandy Thornton. It's one of the only places still open in town because of the pandemic. We grabbed a quick lunch and chatted about our work and families and her grandkids. After working at the raft for five years, she became a special education teacher. It's been 35 years since the murders, and Sandy says the memory of those two men at the raft still haunts her. She wonders if the wrong person was convicted in the Haysom murders. I was a volunteer and a volunteer on call, which means um, if volunteers had questions, um, they could call me if there was any problems or if they had any questions, they could call me. What did you do at the raft? What was your... Oh, I was um, a hotline crisis intervention assistant. Um, uh, We took suicide calls. Uh, People had questions, information and referral um, people that were depressed or just wanted to have someone to talk to. Like that? Oh, I loved it. What do you remember um, that night? The police brought in two, two homeless people that needed a place to spend the night. We had just started a overnight shelter and they brought them in and dropped them off. And I checked them in. Each one of them had a knife and they had to put them in a, a box, which we had to hold for them for later. We've looked through the police reports, and they confirm. Shiflett and Albright arrived at the raft on April 7, 1985, at 9.15 p.m., a week after the Hasems were killed, and one day after the murder of the homeless man in Roanoke. Albright had a folding buck-type knife, about four inches long when closed, with a wooden handle. Shiflett checked in a butcher knife with a five-inch blade. One of the volunteers, a man named Phil Hackett, later told police he noticed a small amount of semi-dry blood near the handle of the knife. Shiflett was wearing a green nylon jacket that he gave to Sandy. I thought they looked like in their 20s, and they were very, very dirty, very, very grungy. It looked like a red coat, um, but I didn't think anything about it at the time. Sandy went home for the night, and the volunteers on duty gave the men clean clothes to change into. She returned to the raft the next morning and got some disturbing updates about the two men. In the morning when I came there, um, the volunteers said they were acting really weird, like they were talking to the TV and looking at the TV saying, um, maybe they'll talk about us in the news, maybe they'll talk about us in the news and something about a a rich bitch. In the police reports, that same volunteer, Phil Hackett, said Shiflett and Albright watched the news to see the weather, 
but paid special attention to a news segment on the murder of the homeless man in Roanoke the night before. He overheard them say things like, the man must have had a lot of money to live in a hotel, and it was probably his time to go anyway. Hackett told police Albright and Shiflett made similar comments about the Hasem murders. Once the news about the Roanoke murder and the Hasem murders was finished, the two men lost interest. They never ended up watching the weather forecast. The next morning, they checked out of the raft and said they were headed for West Virginia. Sandy remembers specifics about what the volunteers overheard. Yeah, it was like, these guys are weird. <laughs> they're, they're, um, they're out of it. They were talking about, you know, blood and gore and um, the rich bitch didn't pay us. And then um, they were talking about being on TV. Um, and then I talked with our director and then we debriefed them. She says the volunteers also heard the men say they'd committed three murders, not one. Soon after Shiflet and Albright checked out of the raft, police showed up. What did the police want? They were looking for them for a murder in Roanoke of a guy that had his penis cut off. It was Betty Jo Anthony and then another, I thought it was a Blacksburg police, but um, later it was somebody from Roanoke. And I thought, I thought they were looking for, for the, the murder for the Hasems, but I, I wasn't sure. Uh, but I was just in shock that they had stayed at our place and the danger for our volunteers. And then after that, we did not have overnight services anymore. Betty Jo Anthony was a Roanoke prosecutor handling the stabbing of the homeless man. Why did you think that they were, Betty Joe and the police officer were coming to talk about the Hasem murder? Because they said three. They didn't say one, but the, the guy said three. Murders? Yeah, three murders. And I thought that Betty Joe and the guy said something about the murders in Lynchburg. Sandy remembered she'd put the men's filthy clothes in a bag the night before, and she retrieved the bag for police. They looked bloody. I thought it was um, brownish red, but when I looked, putting them in and I had gloves on, it looked like blood to me on, on pants and top. And I had forgot to take them in the trash, and by the time the police came, I said, their clothes looked really terrible, and they looked at it and said, that looks like blood. And it had pants, a shirt, and um, at least, I thought it was two, two coats. The authorities left and Shiflett and Albright were picked up a few days later in West Virginia. They were charged with murder in the death of the homeless man in Roanoke. Sandy thought she and other volunteers would be called to testify. I was subpoenaed, but we never had to go. We never got questioned after that, nothing. And did you tell um, any law enforcement at the time about what had been overheard, or did any volunteers that you know of? Just briefly, just with um, Betty Joe Anthony and the other male, the other law enforcement, and then nothing, nothing. We reached out to Betty Joe Anthony. She retired from the Roanoke's Commonwealth Attorney's Office two years ago. Our emails went unanswered, and we couldn't find a working phone number for her, so we turned to Facebook. She responded in a Facebook message, but declined to be interviewed. I do remember these terrible crimes, she wrote. However, I do not remember details, which I am sure you need. 
Hopefully you'll be able to find what you need in the clerk's office. Good luck. Criminal files are public records, and courts keep them for decades. But old cases are kept off-site in storage and can be difficult to find. We wanted to see if there were any records that could give us more details about what Shiflet and Albright said to volunteers at the raft that night. And we were also curious if there was any blood evidence in that Roanoke case that might suggest a connection to the Hasem murders. Multiple blood samples were collected from the Hasem murder scene. Years later, DNA testing showed that two unidentified men left blood at the scene. One was type O. The other was AB. We hoped the court files might help us determine if Shiflet or Albright had AB or O blood. It took weeks for a helpful clerk to locate both files, but there was nothing about blood evidence in either file, and they didn't give us fresh leads that might connect the cases. We decided to go back to Chuck Reed, the initial investigator in the Hasem murders, who now believes Yen Soaring was wrongly convicted. We asked him if he remembered hearing about Shiflet and Albright, or the Roanoke stabbing in those early days of the Hasem investigation. Did anybody go, do you remember if anybody that was working on the Hasem murders ever questioned them about it or anything, or was it kind of just like not really followed? I don't think it was really followed up on that much, but, I, you know, I was going to tell you, but it's like I say, I was given certain things to do, and I was doing certain things pertaining to the case, and so it was never brought up to me to do anything with it. We also reached back out to Ricky Gardner, the other lead investigator in the case, to see if he remembered, considering if the Roanoke murder could be connected to the Hasem murders. Gardner declined to speak on the phone. But in an email exchange, he said Albright and Shiflet were eliminated early on in the investigation. He did not answer our questions about how they were eliminated, or if anyone from Bedford questioned them, or if their DNA has ever been compared to the blood at the Hasem crime scene. Sandy told us after she wrote those letters in 2018, she started getting messages from reporters and investigators. I did not talk to anybody except for I just wrote, and I think I gave you a copy of it, um, what I had said, what I had done, and I didn't talk to anybody. As we're ending the interview with Sandy in the Hardy's parking lot, we ask her why it's important for her to speak out now, after all these years. She pauses for a long time and has tears in her eyes when she answers. I would like to see that Jens did not do it, did not murder, that the, um, there will be, truth will be found, that whoever, whoever killed the parents, the, the mother and the father, will be found. We wanted to talk to more volunteers from the raft, specifically Phil Hackett, the person named in the police report, but we learned he's died. Two volunteers we reached weren't working that night. Others haven't returned our calls. But we found another person who knows a lot about the two men. Next, on Small Town, Big Crime. The story's going around saying that my dad did it, my dad did it. 
and he didn't realize at the time that my dad was on that compound. So my dad was doing everything he could to try to get it sworn to kill him because he kept rubbing my dad's name in the dirt. And my dad didn't like that. Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for season two, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town, Big Crime. Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network, Common House in Charlottesville. Now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee, thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections, both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous, comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself. And if you spot us there, say hello.